How you feeling? How you feeling this week? Why do you put the Why do you put the the spotlight on me right away? Because I'm the first one to talk, and what am I supposed to say? But how are you? <laughs> or you just want to jump right in? I do. Okay, listen. <clears throat> so this week, one of the guests is Daniel Bernard Remain. He's uh, collaborating with the Norfolk Chamber Orchestra over with uh, over at Yale University. He wrote a piece of music in honor of. Uh, Diamond and Diana, who were, um, you know, the widows, I should say. Uh, Diamond was the girlfriend, and Diana was the stepdaughter of Philando Castile. Now, I don't like that this needs to be for the down, this needs to be the downbeat this week, but honestly, in doing my research and preparing for the conversation, I came across this and had never seen it before. You hadn't? No, well, let, let's, for, for the folks who, um, so this is Diamond and Deanna in the back of a police car after the police murdered Philando Castile a few years ago. It's like the police just got done shooting somebody and they're in the back of the police car. Right. Anyway, we don't have to listen to all of this. I'm going to put it in the description. What do you think repeating it here did? Do you think that had some sort of specific impact just repeating that footage over and over again here in Minnesota? Because like I said, I had never seen this. I had never seen this footage before. You mean TV stations? Right, or news and all that. Why would it? Why would they want that to be seen? Well, what impact do you think it had? Because I am looking at this for the first time for the people who were seeing this looped on the news. Yeah, I what, saw what it do a you lot. Think, what do you think was the hoped-for impact of this trauma? This child trauma porn. The only thing I can think of is to keep it in the forefront, to keep it in front of mind. No reason. I mean, she was probably four years old there. Mm -hmm. No reason for a four-year-old to have a context on getting shooted, as she says. That is horrifying to me. At you know, telling her mom to calm down because she doesn't want her mom to get shot. Mm -hmm. That's a lot. That's a lot to deal with. It is. Oh, oh my goodness. So anyway, we're going to be getting into that in the um, in the third movement today. But I just wanted to bring that up. I'll have it in the description again, as I said, because that is traumatic footage. It's footage that I think is important to see. When I think about that little girl, I think about the better world that us grown folks need to work to build for her. And for little girls like her, if she grows up and decides to wants to play an instrument, to be a musician, I feel like it's up to us to make this worth a damn for her. You, you, you know what I mean? Sure. When, the, when I think about triloquy, that's one of the one of the things I think about. You mean like the world you leave behind? Exactly. Or the one that you hand off. Or yeah, or, or create the ecosystem we create right. for the next generation yeah, coming into it all. Mm -hmm. mm. Well, let's... Uh, Let's go ahead and get into it.
I'm Garrett McQueen. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy. You have any uh, announcements or anything this week before we get into this first movement? I don't, but I do have a couple accidentals. I think we should hop to it. Sure. Well, let, I'll just quickly say I uh, owe uh, a couple thanks for this week. First of all, uh, huge thanks to the ICE organization, the ICE Ensemble. They're doing Ensemble Evolution, really having conversations to completely restructure what we think about when we think about ensembles, even when we think about music and what is music. So I had a great time uh, collaborating there uh, last week. I think I saw Katie on the roster as well, so shout out oh, to yeah. Katie over at uh, Classically Black. And I want to thank everyone over at Meg Quigley. They uh, recently, uh, they're, they're supporters and recently published a conversation that Titus and I had about uh, three songs, three uh, uh, you know works based on spirituals by William Grant Still, and you mm-hmm. know when both Titus and myself are in the same space is dope. So <laughs> shout out to Titus. I'll have that uh, linked as well. But yeah, I think that does it for my announcements this week. So let's get into movement one. Have a few naturals after last week. <laughs> do you have any naturals you want to do? You weren't you weren't italicized last week too, were you? Which no? What do you mean, like a little tipsy? No, no. A, a couple a couple opuses ago, you said I was a little italicized. I was last in time. italics. Actually, I think I was in italics, and you were in bold. Okay. Well, oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Well, uh, the first natural, first of all, for uh, I, I didn't thank anybody. Thank you for being here, y'all. This is Triloquy. <laughs> New listeners, thank you so much. Welcome. Returning listeners, always great to have you. Okay. So um, my first natural here, and for folks who don't know, when we throw a natural on something, that's just kind of fixing or adjusting something that we were talking about last week. So last week's guest was uh, Babatunde Akim Boboye. Um, very much a baritone. I, I clocked him uh, as a tenor, but I just want to make sure I put some uh, respect on that. But also, Scott, I've I sent you a little DM. There was a little drama <laughs> concerning that interview. So apparently, when Baba Tunde was going in and talking about folks climbing the ranks and destroying organized efforts down at the bottom, especially of, right. of black people. Baba Tunde must have been talking about someone in particular. I know that person's name now because it's been told to me. I'm not going to repeat it here or nothing because I don't know him personally. But all I want to say about that is if something on this podcast hits your spirit, that, that that's that because I we're not... Where I wasn't leading him to talk about this particular person. Oh, you weren't. I, I didn't even you were know. You were trying the to coax information out of him. You no, weren't. No, we were just to, talking. Mm. We, we were talking about that issue. And for folks who weren't here last week, the issue that we were talking about again was folks who rise the ranks in certain industries, specifically opera. They've made their, you know, their their spot in the limelight and in the opera house or whatever. So they want to just sort of rustle up organized efforts to challenge those things as a concept. Mm. I know that 
exists. If there's a, a specific person that that applies to and you felt like somebody was talking about you, it sounds like you need to change your ways, not worry about <laughs> what, what I've tried to do on my little podcast. <laughs> so um, anyway, that gets a natural. I also want to throw out a quick natural. Uh, I uh, said that my friend Emil was a part of the Minnesota Orchestra. Emil plays violin with the Minnesota Opera. So shout out to the Minnesota Opera. I want to make sure I get all that right. We mm. were, I, I was saying a lot of music words last week. Getting, Did you? Getting mixed up a little bit. And um, also, uh, I couldn't remember what record label that Randall Gooseby had signed to. Uh, I said it was one of the classical labels. Well, it actually ended up being DECA. Right. And, and there's actually uh, a bit of news coming out about um, Randall Gooseby and everything that uh, he's uh, got going on. There's a New York Times article here. It says, for a major debut, a young violinist gets personal. I'm going to uh, scroll down here because there was one little paragraph that I thought was something. Uh, this article is probably Josh Barone. Yep. Uh, article by Joshua Barone. It says, a debut recording has to express the signature of the artist. And that's exactly what this is from someone who is a perfect advocate as a performer, but also a perfect advocate as a communicator of what this music means, said Dominic uh, Fief, the director of DECA. It's always exciting to see young artists which are right at the beginning of the runway. So again, uh, Randall Gooseby, uh, a black violinist originally from Memphis, uh, 901, you know, everybody uh, stand up down there. Uh really pushing uh, or being pushed out there as this new hotshot mm -hmm. in uh, in violin. I think it's kind of cool to see a black hotshot violinist, someone that I feel like I've had a, a connection with. I saw him perform live at Sphinx a few years back. Uh, I mentioned I'm 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 happy for him. There there are some I would love to sit down with Randall. Yeah. So if you're if Randall's management if you're listening right now, send me an email at triloquy at gmail dot com. I want to. I think we could get into some. We things. played we played his music just last week. Uh, yeah, we um, we played a movement, and one of uh, one of the, what we played last week actually is on his new album, Roots, that I recommend everybody go get. I think it's a pretty good album, and mm -hmm. it's it's not every day I'm up here <laughs> talking about a violin album or even listening <laughs> to a violin album on my own time. That's so. true. Um, so definitely go get that. We uh, heard a movement from the uh, Suite for Piano and Violin by uh, William Grant Still last week, African Dancer. This week, I want to um, give a little room to Randall Gooseby's performance of music by Coleridge Taylor Perkinson. We were saying Coleridge Taylor Percocet. <laughs> Coleridge Taylor Perkinson. Uh, this tune is called Blues Form. It's a three-movement tune. I really like this first movement. And what I, what I appreciate most about this is the intonation that Randall plays with. You have to really get those double and triple stops exactly right mm -hmm. to make sure mm -hmm. it sounds good. And then he's sliding on them. Anyway, let's listen to a little bit of this. Shout out to Randall Gooseby signed with DECA. Remember when we saw um, Molly Mayer at the Hook and Ladder before mm -hmm. in the in the before four? Um, I think that sound 
that we just heard from Randall Gooseby would fit into that sort of space. If you get Randall with the right kind of band, the right kind of collaborators that understand, sure. you know, his vibe enough to really fit in. I, I don't know. I, I think there would be something there. That felt, that sounded sultry to me. Yeah. It yeah. sounded sort of... Um, Sexy, like the red light challenge. <laughs> <laughs> and the right, the uh, silhouette challenge. And the problem is, I feel like that sort I, I feel like we just jumped right in this week. The problem is, is that that sort of sound and that sort of technique. I think is still other. That's still the so-called extended technique, as we've already talked about. I don't know if anybody is, I don't know if many people, I'll say, are really learning how to do that sort of thing in school. If these teachers at these conservatories are equipped and trained to teach that sort of soul, sultriness. A couple weeks back when Rachel Barton Pine was on, and she was talking about playing violin in that way, she talked about how she improvised with the blues folks in her communities, and she went out to the jams, and so that was her training there. I wonder where Randall was getting all that from. It, it sounds good. Again, it's a sort of intonation that I haven't heard in a in a little minute. I've been indoors, so right. <laughs> no, I enjoy that sound, and I think you're right that um, it should be just a technique rather than an extended technique. Um, what would, there's a place for it. What would be so? I imagine at um, your job, this album, this music is going to be coming through. That music we just heard, that Coverage Taylor Perkinson, that blues form. What would uh, what would be your sort of break for for that? How how would you introduce and or you know uh, a listener to what they're about to hear or create some context around this new sort of violin sound? Maybe compare and contrast what you would expect to hear at that point in time and say, no, instead we're going to go like down to the blues bar. But maybe uh, I think talking about those extended techniques, just as techniques, you know, say, listen to the way he hits the double stops or the way that he's sliding up and down into mm-hmm. these notes. Um, that's the mimic. That's mimicking the some of the blues technique, isn't it? Very fluid, very sexy and sultry, yeah. as you say. I'll, I'll give Randall a, a sharp. While we're here, while sharpen we're here. the headphones. I'm telling you. <laughs> well, we did we not check the levels before? <laughs> did we not? <laughs> anyway, okay. So, um, up, so th- those are the the naturals and things. So, uh, this is coming out on the last day of Black Music Month and Pride Month. So, um, we have a little we have a little Pride accidental. So, let's send a sharp uh, a sharp for Pride. First of all, yeah. you want you wanted to talk about um, Bianca Page. Take it away. Go down to Tennessee. The Nashville uh, Mayor John Cooper has um, made a first. You know, we talk about Titus and how he's ready for some boring stories. Let's, Who is uh, living in Nashville. Right. So, so okay, he's going to drive down Bianca Page Avenue. He's going to walk down Bianca Page Way. It is the first street named after a drag queen in the United States. And in the tweet, Mayor John Cooper called Bianca Page a Nashville legend. He said, this is the first street in America named after a drag performer. So congratulations to Bianca Page. Do you have any fun um, drag stories from when you were at the drag show? Not from the drag show, because... uh, (laughs) Go ahead. uh, Because I I haven't been to one. Ever? Ever? No, I don't think so. Oh, you super straight. <laughs> well, I guess. But uh, I was in a play called At Breakneck Speed where one of my uh, co-star's friends was a very flamboyant uh, gay man. In in and the play or in real life? 
both. Oh, so okay. it worked out. Amen. Yeah. So um, <laughs> and the, the, he he was in drag as sort of the older characters, you know, like a like a Barbara Bush, sure, sort of sure, thing. Mrs. Doubtfire, and, right? And he would uh, <laughs> he would get ready at home. And then drive to the theater. And once he got pulled over by the cops and he made him turn his car off and it was like 100 degrees outside and all this Barbara Bush makeup is just sort of sliding down his she face. Should've, she should have did it in the dressing room at the theater. Uh, I don't know. I don't know why that happened that way. But the way he told the story, we were rolling on the floor laughing. Uh, when the Knoxville Symphony, back when I was down there, when we, <laughs> when we would do the Nutcracker, they would try to get a local celebrity involved on the stage sure. in some way. So in Knoxville, you know, I worked at a public radio station, and then there was another public radio station that was more, um, I hate to say pop, like not quite the current, but a public radio station that was into the bluegrass and the, uh, sure. the more contemporary country-esque things. Anyway, their main host was the Drosselmeyer one year, the the magical uncle or whatever. And he said he uh, was in all of his uh, you know makeup. This isn't even drag. This is just uh, evil uncle makeup for the Nutcracker. Went to Subway or something, and he said he <laughs> went and he said he got to the counter, and the cashier was like, "You are so brave, and I support you." <laughs> People are crazy, but <laughs> at least it wasn't the opposite because oh, it also awesome. could have been bad. It also could have been bad. It could have, but thank you for that laugh, boy. That was necessary. <laughs> that that was that was good. But also Subway, I don't know. Unless Subway was to write you know, me a check, in, I don't trust Subway. Over in Ireland, they say that you can't even call the Ireland. The Irish government has said to Subway, "You can't call your bread bread." There's so much sugar in there that is that that isn't even bread anymore. But but. Would you not eat there? Do do you still eat there? I haven't had a Subway sandwich in I don't know how long. I mean, I don't know how we got on Subway. Anyway, um, so shout out to uh, Bianca Page Avenue. Bianca Page Way. I'll have to read more about that article. It it sounds like Bianca Page has passed on. That's that's what this is in honor of. Well, I can still say congratulations. Yeah, of course. No, yeah, but I'm saying I just just need to learn. Oh, yeah, sure. I just need to learn more. Okay, uh, sticking sticking with our little uh, pride sharps here for this last day. Oh, I didn't mean that. There we go. <laughs> I want to I want to throw another sharp out to Lil Nas X. Now, you're I know you didn't watch the BET Awards, but you're on Twitter. Did you see anything? I did. <laughs> what do you think? Okay, so folks who don't know, Lil Nas X um, last night. This is Monday. Last night at the BET Awards did um, a performance to his new song, Call Me By Your Name, you know, of the music video, Stripper Pole Down to Hell, uh, Satan Lap Dance, all that. So for the live performance, he gave like an Egyptian sort of, you know, right. thing. And even uh, had an homage to the Remember the Time video, you know, the Michael yeah, Jackson. Yeah, yeah. And, and I did some of that choreography anyway. And went up there and was um, tongue-kissing a young man. Two young men tongue kissing on the BET Awards. I never thought I'd see the day. And maybe, yeah. maybe, mm. maybe it's insignificant to you, but for me and my thirty-four years Hang of on. gay, I never, I never thought. You know, back I'm, the I'm truck seeing, up. I'm seeing that stuff. Back the quicker. truck up. Back the truck up. What? Okay, what you need? <laughs> what about me? Makes you think that it's it's wouldn't be a big it's no big deal to me because you don't you're not gay and so like maybe that sort of stuff isn't significant to to you or something you don't think ex- excuse me for for assuming 
to talk, talk to me about how this was such a, a, a heartwarming moment for you. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm sorry. My, I don't really have any strong feelings about it. See, and, I don't feel scandalized. I don't feel like it was forced on me. I don't care that I, I was in theater for much of my life. This is, I don't care that this, same this sex is people why, kiss. But this is why it's a thing because I have to watch straight couples kiss on TV all on every other channel. Right? Do, do you feel scandalized by it? I don't feel scandalized. I feel like, why are we making a scandal out of this? That's all Agreed. I'm saying. And P. Diddy uh, congratulated him for uh, being himself and, and pushing through. And, and folks are trying to clown P. Diddy now mm. for, for his support. I don't know. The homophobia is so fucking lame. I'm sorry. Um, let me give a flat to all the homophobes out there. That is, homophobia is like an outdated hate. <laughs> I mean, because it seems like everybody knows somebody gay. Sure. Even if you don't know, you know somebody gay. Right. And that's the other bit of tea. But uh, for, basically, that we, we all have that connection. There are white gay folks, <laughs> black gay folks. There are uh, queer people in every identity and in every corner of of society, so if we're yeah. just gonna, I don't know. I, I just, I just needed to shout out Lil Nas X and name that y'all are losers on on the internet trying to say something about this or make it a scandal or or make it a whatever. Agreed. You got too much time on your hands. <laughs> anyway, my last little um, pride sharp goes to Queen Latifah. She got a Lifetime Achievement Award cool. at the BET Awards. We've talked about Queen Latifah on this podcast A couple before. times. Oh, yeah. And um, she, she deserves all of the things, as far as I'm concerned. Queen Latifah can rap. She can act. She's been in um, Living Single and so many other things. She's Dif different types of roles because Khadijah James is very different than whatever her character's name in was on Set It Off, mm -hmm. which was very different. She was in uh, Chicago. I never saw it, but I she had it. a she had a prominent <laughs> role in one of my favorite films called um, Oh, it's with uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal and Will Ferrell. Stranger Than Fiction. She's got a, a major part. Oh, I don't in even that. think I know that movie at all. Oh, it's a it's a really good film, and she plays like a, an industry sort. You know, not an industry sort, but she works for a publisher, and her job is to get people to fit, hit deadlines. Yeah, yeah. Last night at the BET Awards, she shouted out her partner, um, told everybody Happy Pride. So, I think it's I think it's cool that we're seeing this. And I know, you know, again, you talk about being in theater and there's plenty of gays in theater, but I have not, again, have not always seen that sort of thing on TV, that sort of oh. affirmation okay. on TV. And maybe I pay more attention to it as a, as a gay man, but I, I think it's quite significant. And there's a whole generation, all these Gen Zers don't even, they don't even think twice about they don't it. Don't even bat it. Yeah. Eye. I see. I think we're, I think we're seeing a shift both on, that front on, you know, sexuality being more overt. Mm -hmm. But uh, I don't know. You said you haven't watched cable news in like three weeks. They, were they and, talking about gay sex on CNN? No, no, no. I'm talking about the sheer number of F-bombs they're letting off the chain. Like when they show... F-U-C-K? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And they are full on... Like Jim Acosta said that Tucker Carlson got the Bullshitter of the Week award. And said it. <laughs> Bullshit. I mean, they're just they're just letting it fly now. Well, they were saying um, shithole country on TV. Right, right. But they were trying to, you know, they would censor some of that. But 
ever since they started showing video of the insurrection on January 6th, and, you know, there was loads of vulgarity being used in those videos. Oh, yeah. So I don't know what the fines are, but I think we're, we, we may be seeing a shift, don't you think? I, when, uh, when, are we going to be the new prudes? I mean, Del and I talk about that all the time, especially, again, when it comes to the queer spectrum. Mm-hmm. Is it going to be old-fashioned to want to be in uh, dichotomous, monogamous relationships? Mm-hmm. I was talking with um, one of my homegirls over the weekend, and we were talking about relationship anarchists, people whose uh, a part of their sexual identity is anti relationship and then all of the other sorts of nuances there i think i I think we are going to be old-fashioned at some point but i just hope that i'm not fighting for the you know like that that's the problem Mm. like it's, it's one thing to like have a belief or come from a culture but when you're pushing back to uh for for other folks's uh inability to uh to to not change another uh term i've been hearing we're going through the uh gay terms the queer terms is um, like homo agitator or trans agitator. So the the idea that, okay, these people aren't afraid of trans people. They aren't afraid of gay people. They just like to agitate. They just don't want them to live in peace. So that's a, that's a word that I'm um, hearing. So don't be mm. a, a homo agitator or trans agitator. Anyway, okay, shout out to Pride Month. Pride here in Minnesota is in uh, July. It's not even in, in uh, Pride Month, I heard. And then Black Pride, which I will definitely be at, is in August when I guess that's when it will be a thousand degrees here. Who knows? <laughs> of course. Shout out to everybody in Portland. If you're listening from Portland, I'm, I'm sending my thoughts to you. I'm going to say a chant for you because I know y'all having a rough time. No air. Seattle's up like at 110. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, they were talking about Portland, a high of 117. I don't know if I've been in 117 degrees. That's hot in texas and think about all the pets like you got to bring your uh please bring your dogs in and and all you know do all that Ooh, chow. Anyway, so so much stuff going on. Well, uh, to get us into our next accidental, since we were giving Queen Latifah her flowers, I thought we would uh, check out some of the classical music that she's performed. So back in, let me uh, read this. She has an album called the um, the Dana Owens album. That's her, you know, that's her government, Dana Owens. Oh. So I guess this is Queen Latifah just coming out as herself. I'm going to uh, go through all of these tracks on my own time, but... Um, The one I thought I would share here today is called Simply Beautiful because Queen Latifah is just that, right? Simply Beautiful. Let's listen to a little bit of this. I'm definitely another sultry more time with that. Oh my goodness. I mean, do do you hear the richness of her voice? Queen Latifah deserves all the things for the new people. (laughs) Again, just in case on this podcast, what we do is challenge the notion of that phrase, classical music. 
all countries, not just Western Europe, all countries have a classical music that they affirm and press forward. You don't have to argue with anybody in Mexico about mariachi. You don't have to argue with Nirmalinim about the um, the vena. You don't have to, you know, so all these examples I always give. In the United States alone is where we argue about what our classical music is. We want our classical music to be European classical music. But we have our classical music. Excuse me. We have the Negro spiritual. We have blues. We have jazz. And what I hear coming out of Queen Latifah in this recording is American classical music, period. Didn't you say you had a friend over in Scotland that said that they don't even differ? It's just music? Um, my homegirl in um, in my home person in uh, Scotland, shout out to Simone, said that there is the traditional path, right, and then okay, the and then the classical path. I'm gotcha. gonna have I'm, I'm gonna have Simone on because um, black folks in Scotland, you know, that's the thing. And then I was hearing stories about how uh, Scotland actually bought Frederick Douglass's freedom, and Frederick Douglass was talking about the only um, music that he thinks comes close to the beauty and the power of the Negro spiritual is the traditional Scottish song. You know, so all of this stuff makes me curious. I wonder what kind of food they eat over there. What is Scottish fare? Is that the bangers and mash and stuff? I don't want to get mixed up with the Irish. Haggis. Y'all will be after me. Haggis? Haggis. What is haggis? Uh, traditionally, it's a, it's a sheep or goat stomach stuffed with uh, barley and... Yeah, and it's stuff it's with barley. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know about that. I don't know about that. I'll try. It. I'll try. It. Anyway, shout out to um, Queen Latifah. Shout out to everyone in Scotland as well. Uh, I would like to be in on that interview because I went through my traditional Celtic phase too. So. Oh, did you? Oh, you, yeah. You have kilts and everything. Um, no, no kilts, but I did run around with a group that was known as the Irish Mob. So, okay. So, are we talking about <laughs> Scottish or Irish? I can I can talk about Scottish too. Okay. Anyway, go ahead and uh, you, you have an accidental here for this first movement. Yeah, I'd like to give a <clears throat> excuse me a sharp to sorry <laughs> a sharp to the artist Blackbock and uh, that's B L K B O K. Yeah. And he is a classically trained pianist and composer, but he's also been playing quite a bit with pop stars. And in, in the article that you share, there's a picture of him playing in Atlantic City with Rihanna. So that gives you an idea. Oh, that's of, Rihanna. Of oh, the, sure the, is. the caliber of people that he's playing with. But he is uh, also a big advocate of the use of classical instruments in hip hop and rap. And he said that, you know, we've already seen uh, the, uh, he said, the music industry must remain conscious of the new classical hip-hop movement to maximize its potential. The first wave of classical cover versions of contemporary pop songs was last year, and now a second opportunity is emerging as demand grows for music that evokes deep emotion. And I, you know, you, I was uh, going to ask you if, uh, if the BET Awards had that same... Yeah. Uh, orchestral instruments being used on stage not as much as i remember from years past i don't know if you remember close to the beginning of season two of triloquy we had the uh, pleasure of uh having stephanie matthews on she's performed Mm -hmm. at the bet where she actually performed on the mary j blige tribute which was dope um they did honor one violinist at the bet awards i'm sorry that i'm not uh remembering his name but 
yeah, I mean, I, I think this is interesting. What's catching my attention, what, what I don't want to pass over, is the very first sentence of this article. This comes from uh, Forbes, again, how Detroit piano prodigy Black Bach is inspiring classical musicians. It says, neoclassical pianist and composer Black Bach. Okay, so we're already just using terminology just all willy-nilly. I'm not saying we have to focus on the Stravinsky and the Schoenberg of it all mm -hmm. with neoclassical, but I wonder if that's a, a phrase that we might see more of, neoclassical, so-called neoclassical. Uh, it's interesting that you point that out because I didn't register that when I started reading the article. Yeah. I didn't even pay attention to that, but what I did pay attention to was further down when he says, when people see me, they expect me to start rapping. And they're mm -hmm. not 100% wrong. He says, I am a rapper, except I spit lyrics and tell my stories through my hands, these notes. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I don't know. Maybe that comment canceled out the neoclassical thing. Do you think that it's a misnomer, that it, that's not accurate? I think, I, I don't know. I think it's a good term, but... The, the music nerds, the music history geeks, the those the oh, colonized yeah. <laughs> education people like me are just going to think about neoclassical and think about early 20th century Western classical. But I right. don't know. I, now, more that I talk about it here, I think that's a, a pretty good term. But I, his uh, his new release is a uh, has two a twofold inspiration. It's called Black Book, inspired by the Black Lives Matter movement, and Green Book, the uh, dramedy film, the biographical dramedy film Green Book. Mm. And there's uh, one track in particular that speaks to our time. Obviously, it's called George Floyd and the Struggle Struggle for Equality, and he is beating the hell out of this piano for this track. Well, let's listen to it a little bit. This is what I think about. What more do people want? Because he just played all of those keys, and it sounds beautiful. As a matter of fact, the very first note reminded me of something that I'll think about as soon as we cut off the mics, but that boom, ding, 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 whatever mm -hmm. concerto that is. I don't know if it's the Greek or whoever, but the, the, the chops are there. So all of the Western, all of the very in-the-box chops that people are looking for are obviously there with this artist, and we have a problem. I don't know if we have a problem, but this is still, we can't say that this is not pushed into the margins. We, we can't say that we're hearing this on the, on the stage yet, and, and that, well, maybe those sorts of sounds, but mm -hmm. I don't know. I, well, I'm going to pay attention to this artist because I, I hadn't um, heard of Black Bach before, but if... Uh, I don't know. We, we've had the conversation about if classical music is going to survive X, Y, and Z. But as soon as we talk about classical, so-called classical music dying, you talk about how you've seen that conversation for decades. And, Since and I here started. we are. Yep. And here we are. Mm -hmm. Did, when you, let, let's flip it over to the hip-hop side real quick. I don't know if I've ever asked you this. When hip-hop was first coming, when you were a, a youngster, did you feel like it would stay did, would, would, did, would, would you have been able to predict that it was the world 
power as far as music that it is today. No, I wouldn't have predicted that, no. But, um, you know, of course I was there for breakdancing. <laughs> and oh, we're, uh, what? Uh, <laughs> that, that lasted what? How was that? That lasted uh, two or three to, years. I would love to see. That lasted two or three years, right? The breakdancing crew. Okay. Uh, Electric Boogaloo. The, the breakdancing two the, film, the uh, refrigerator boxes and all the that. jumpsuits, all, and that, all that. Sure, they were doing that in Omaha. Of course. Okay. Come on now. Come on. I don't. I've never been to Omaha. I don't know. Okay. It's a little <laughs> bit more cosmopolitan than you're giving us credit for, but um, to me, um, music was very segregated where I where uh, I was growing up. You yep. know, because when <clears throat> when I hung out with the people that were in my neighborhood. It was Led Zeppelin, Molly Hatchet, Ozzy Osbourne, all those rock bands. Mm-hmm. Now you go over to the other side of town where there were the uh, the the more yuppie kids. Sure, and that's where I was getting the the British bands, New Order, the Smiths, things like that. Oh, okay, and then of course you go to the North End. And it's the nothing. homies, right? So you've got <laughs> that's where that's where people were listening to N.W.A. and Public Enemy, Bobby Brown, you know uh, those sorts of those sorts of bands. So t- to me, it, it was very easy to get siloed. Yeah, they were listening to N.W.A. and Bobby Brown. Period. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> Support all black music. They did. Um, when you talk about music musical genres being segregated i think that's a an important point to highlight because these days again as we're talking about um with black Bach, the fusion of these things we talk about fusion all all over the place between um different genres that segregation is beginning to disappear and the racism is jumping out Malcolm X famously said there is only racism where there is a threat. You know, when Beyonce sang at the CMT and bodied, oh, they had a problem. Sure. You know, mm-hmm. and they were with the chicks. I think they were the Dixie chicks still right. at that point. But, right. but I think that's some of what we're seeing here as these 808s, as these um, untraditional, so-called untraditional sounds and aesthetics and techniques. You know, again, we're wiping away the idea of extended techniques, but just techniques as all these things creep into the cla- or try to creep into the classical spaces is going to be all sorts of reasons why. This is not that. And we have to build this wall and we have to gatekeep mm-hmm. this way. I think that segregation of music that we all experience, you know, I'm thinking we were talking about Queen Latifah. You know, I'm thinking about the early 90s. The black folks in Memphis listened to the black stations. And in a mostly black city like Memphis, there's the the old school R&B. There's the uh, top 40 rap. Mm-hmm. There's the rap. I'm trying not to curse, but mm. <laughs> there's all, you know, there's the gospel. So that's that's just what we listen to. But again, as this is all meshing and melding, it's changing into something different. We're seeing a lot of actually, you know, speaking of the BET awards, Lil Baby, okay, again, not the baby. Lil Baby <laughs> performed his song with Kirk Franklin. So we're seeing the meshing, the melding of hip hop, rap, and gospel mm. and that's not an issue we're not up in arms about that but uh, diff- different types of fusions are are you know uh, all of this to say this is my long way of saying the day 
that classical programmers for the stage, for radio, conservatories, the day is coming when we all just have to face the fact that you don't like those black sounds in the room. And 808 is not dangerous, but they're not going to have an 808 on on your radio station anytime soon or, or any other, uh, I won't say any other classical radio station, but most of the other ones. And the, the reason, well, I don't know. I'll, I'll just say, I feel like the reason is that black, what it, maybe they'll say urban sound because it's not the rhythm it's not the rhythm of these beats because if you put that rhythm on a, mar- a marimba or whatever's in, in the back of the orchestra back there in this contemporary piece of music by fill-in-the-blank contemporary composer, it's okay. But as soon as it's a drum machine, we have a problem. To be honest with you, after reading that article and then listening to the album, I was surprised that a it's drum machine so, didn't come in. Yeah, yeah. No, it's pretty It's it's pretty straight-ahead uh, neoclassical, yeah. classical-esque. I guess the the other thing to really note about this is if you have those chops and you are open to what's on the outside, if you're open to breaking down those barriers, you too can be on the stage with Rihanna. Tell me what I got to do to uh, perform Beyonce. Hell yeah. What scales do I need to practice? <laughs> Just <laughs> let me call Lady Jess, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway, all right. Um we have in this first movement one more accidental it it gets a flap but let's go ahead and let's just go ahead and and warn the people problematic i'm gonna i'm just gonna read a little bit this is and and actually scott since we've come over (laughs) or since you came over the apology video came out so oh did it yeah or the video the article so for i was gonna say i saw the article but video well we'll let's let's uh, let the folks know what we're talking about so violinist pinkus zuckerman did a master class at Juilliard and was in there wilding, mm-hmm. just thinking he could just say any old thing. Juilliard decided not to publish the master class. And now, as we're seeing here, published literally as we're sitting here, the headline from the New York Times is Violinist Apologizes for Culturally Insensitive Remarks About Asians. I'm going to read just a little bit so folks know what's going on. Um a master class by the renowned violinist Pika Zuckerman was supposed to be the highlight of a recent virtual symposium hosted by the Juilliard School. Instead, Zuckerman angered many of the roughly 100 students and teachers in the class on Friday when he invoked racist stereotypes about Asians, leading Juilliard to decide not to share a video of his master class afterward with participants as it had initially intended. At one point, Zuckerman told a pair of students of Asian descent that their playing was too perfect and that they needed to add soy sauce according to two participants in the class. At another point, in trying to encourage the students to play more lyrically, he said he understood that people in Korea and Japan do not sing, participants said. His comments were reported earlier by Violinist.com, a music site. Mm-hmm. All right, Scott, what? I mean, what, what, nothing's going to happen to him. That's what I tweeted. I, I retweeted the article and said he is going to be fine, and that bothers me. What are, what are people going to do? What, what, what should be the action. We talk about how cancel culture isn't a real thing or whatever, but there has to be something. There has to be some um, therapy or some just something, like just finding whatever is in him that needs to change, that needs to be dealt with, so this doesn't happen again. Uh, an apology published by the New York Times doesn't mean a goddamn thing to me. Excuse me. It doesn't, mm-hmm. it doesn't mean anything. It sure. really doesn't mean anything. I hate to see what he say about the blacks. Mm. Put some hot sauce on it. Put some put some watermelon or chicken on it. I don't know. I, I mean, you know. you can't take you can't put it past him 
talking about soy add some soy sauce i did in, i did get to interview him once and oh really i thought that i would start the interview fun and on a light note and i said and it got problematic i said have you heard any good viola jokes and he was not amused and it took me about five or ten minutes to dig my way out of that hole and get the uh oh, inter- zuckerman plays viola both okay yeah okay. and so i i asked him if he heard it and he says oh i don't like that oh he don't like that no but and, you can call talk about soy sauce and he also believed that you know everything need to be played exactly as it was on the page you know we he he got pretty animated about that uh was the artistic director for the saint paul chamber orchestra for a number of years and, and no more and no he's not anymore and uh but that was ages ago. It was oh, that like was late eight, late, okay. late 80s, early 90s. Oh, that I think, long ago. Like that. Okay. A, yeah, and he sort of raised the profile a little bit. But like a lot of the artists out there, um, I've, I heard grumblings of not, you know, kind of unsavory behavior. Um, part of Pincus's image is a certain swagger, you know, a certain air of confidence that he puts out there too mm-hmm. you know so i could i could uh, I, I did not expect an apology to come out oh really no i figured that he would just go well i said what i said mm. well, he, um, well he apologized which don't mean nothing but i guess you have to be on record for that probably what what do we need to the other part of the conversation i want to have is the white folks who are in the room y'all didn't y'all didn't say nothing if Pinga Zuckerman come in here and say something about some hot sauce or some fried chicken, what are you going to do? That's what I need to know. Um, that's a great question. Uh, I, I would probably get up and leave. And not even fight him or nothing? <laughs> no, I can fight my own battles. Yeah. But like we've talked about before, that's not necessarily my nature. Sure, sure. Um, I don't know. I, I, I just think we need to be more active about that part of the conversation as well. Okay, somebody is, is talking some bullshit in a master class or something. Who is going to stand up and put Pinka Zuckerman in his place? Indeed, who? It needs, it needs to be that. Who? I'd, Indeed. I, I'd, I'd be there in my, with my, my finger all in his face talking about... To this day! I, I'll find a reason to, to bring up... <laughs> well, but based on whatever problematic thing he says, that is, you know... An opportunity. I don't know. I I I know they say kill them with kindness and turn the other cheek. I'm not cheek. I'm not saying fight nobody. Get physical in these master class in these spaces. But you just can't let it ride. You need to you need to stop the pressure. You're just talking right about there. calling. You're talking about calling it out in the moment. Mm-hmm. Like like stop. No stop the master class. Everybody put your instruments down. Put your bow down. You are out of line. Okay, so you said, what is it going to take? Uh, It's going to take getting this story wider distribution. Because just for a goof while you were talking there, I went on my phone and called up a couple different uh, public news and music outlets. Mm -hmm. And I have not seen this story out yet. The apology? I haven't even seen the the story about the masterclass being canceled. It's It's not getting... Uh, it's not getting attention in the very venue that it is in. Mm-mm. Well, I have a very active Twitter timeline. Shout out to all of my followers mm. <laughs> because th- that's how I learned about this sort of news. And I don't know. Thoughts and prayers to everybody at Juilliard. Uh, Pinka Zuckerman, I hope your E string pops, okay? Oh, damn. <laughs> well, obviously. 
we aren't going to listen to Pink, Pink is Zuckerman to uh, we don't accident yeah we're done with the accidentals we aren't going to listen to Pink is Zuckerman but there's another tune that I want to listen to so okay. you know again in the second movement we talk about how we've been taking the second repeats and you know what we're repeating over and over again all month I've had an honorable mention I let my uh uh, YouTube music or whatever just go about a month ago just play some stuff and this song that I didn't know by Denise Williams it's called Free it came up and after I heard it I just kept repeating and repeating I put a little flute rendition of it on um, on YouTube so let's let's listen to just uh, uh, a bit of this to transition us into the second movement so we can talk about how we uh, took the second ending this week You don't know this song at all? I don't. I didn't know it either. I want to let the beat drop, though. Hear all those orchestral instruments, chimes and things. It wants to remind me of Donna Summer. Yeah, I was thinking that as well. There's even a live um, Soul Train performance of this. Here go the beat. Oh, this is my part. I need my roller skates. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I keep pushing that button, by the way. I meant to fade that, y'all. Anyway, um, Donna, uh, Denise Williams, Free, a really cool tune. I've been I've been repeating and repeating and repeating that. And when when I'm, uh, you know, again, when I'm in my moods, when I'm in my angry mood, not my depressed moods, but my angry moods, that has been a song that has, you know, got me got me just calm down a little bit she's singing about being me she's singing about being free and it has a nice little groove to it that nice black classical groove to it i love mm. it so shout out to denise williams but we're here in the second movement officially um where we are taking the second ending and um revisiting some of the tunes that we had on repeat this last week all right scott so <clears throat> for black music month mm-hmm. we've been Covering a lot of a lot of different types of black music, we've gotten a little bit into the gospel this month. Obviously, we get into the hip hop, the Western classical. Again, shout out to Randall Gooseby and all those folks. You brought I've, I've returned to the um, uh, the uh, uh, the Marsalis violin concerto, the oh, Wynn right? Marsalis. I've been uh, listening to that. Cool. Well, um, and I'll, I'll update all this on the Trickle Tracks playlist. I'm behind, but the one place we didn't get Scott was black country and i know we've you know we've we've had that conversation before but when we talk about equity and really making sure that we're keeping our spaces as diverse as possible the classical american tradition of country music is one that black people have always been involved with and um are are still involved with so i wanted to make sure before the end of black music month i gave a little room to something i heard recently you ready for this yeah this, this is a bop for me okay uh, I'm, I'm not even going to say anything about it. I just want to get your straight up opinion. If she get a shadow whiskey, she know how to throw it back. She turn up for Elvis Presley, told the DJ throw it back. She look better every Thursday, she don't have to throw it back. Sha 
description to watch the beat drop. And the song is featuring um, Keith, Keith Urban. Urban. So shout out to Keith Urban as well. Okay, this is my question. Is that a country song? Is that a song that you would consider a country song? Did he lose his truck? <laughs> Did his dog well, run away? And this is that is a new hit single. The artist, if y'all don't know, his name is Braylon. B R E L A N D. Throw it back, <laughs> featuring Keith Urban is a um. An, it says here uh, June, so it's a new single. Mm. But Braylon, I, I uh, just did a little digging. Has a whole album, and one of them is "Don't Touch My Truck." Okay, so, so okay. there are definitely those. You know, more. I hate to say rural because that's not sure. what it is, but just that the country. Sort I, of thing. I feel. I feel like I have to stand up for country. I think this oh, is here new. We go. I think this is new country. Here we go with all the subgenres. I'm, I'm hip. <laughs> But no, what I'm talking about when I, when you say country, I think George Jones, Patsy Cline, okay. uh, Waylon, Willie, sure, those names. That's country. Dolly. And then you know what is on the radio now? I, I it's pop with a violin to me. I so, don't know what channel the country music on. Do we have one? We I, have to have I, one. I wouldn't know. Okay. I don't. Li- I don't listen to the radio in the car. That's true. Yep. Um, but yeah, I've been uh, turning back to uh, Braylon. One of my things is again, as we're talking about, you know, the melding and the the desegregation of genre. I think I might start using that phrase, the desegregation mm. of genre. More of of these these mixes at the fringe are happening. I know. Um, shout out to everybody down in Knoxville. Um, the Cotton Eye Joe in Memphis is not a club anymore, but Denim and Diamonds. So all of these country western bars that have the line dancing, that has all that stuff, but will throw in a little blackness because the black people are there too. This is that vibe. Hmm. And I don't think this is not country. I'm not about to argue with somebody about whether this is country. I know CMT them probably will not accept it, but I hear that country twang in the voice. I hear the guitars. I hear all of those things, and it happens to have a little beat on it. So mm-hmm. what? So fucking what? That's my that's that's my thing. So I just wanted to make sure we gave some room to Braylon, especially if we're going to talk about the um, you know the beats and stuff on classical. This is this is fine too, and this is still country, as I said, the American classical tradition of country music. What do you think pop music is going to sound like when you and I are on our deathbeds? <laughs> ain't ain't <laughs> no telling. Do you remember? Um, <laughs> I'm gonna find it real quick. Do you remember that episode of uh, Rick and Morty where? Uh, Jerry is in the simulation and he turns on the radio and the aliens don't quite know what to do so they just do human music. Right. Beep boop beep. I think it's a trap. <laughs> somebody somebody is going to do this. Yeah. Is it going to play? Oh, I'm, I'm I'm on mute. And now here's human music. Huh. Human music. I like it. You are not going to tell me <laughs> that there is not a like new music, and this is no shade, a new music composer, uh, experimental music person, somebody 
that would not turn that in. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> I, so I used to. I used to uh, ask myself. I wonder how long I could get this off. Like when I was on the radio, I was like, I wonder if I just played this. Mm. How long before the police showed up? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so shout out to Braylon. Throw it back. Featuring Keith Urban. Um, that was I, a good I fun. Kept, I kept taking the second ending on that this week. I'm going to keep listening to it. What you w- want to talk about music-wise? Since this is the last opportunity that we get to um, of- officially observe Black, history, Black Music History Month, um, I, I want to throw out just an amazing voice. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I say that is because when... Uh, I, I hear this from a lot of people, but when I first heard this artist, I did not know where to catalog this voice. Mm. Male or female, don't know. Old, young, don't know. Black, white, don't know. It's just such a unique voice. And when you want to talk about Littles, uh, he, was, littles. he was actually, when he, when he was uh, popular in the 1940s and 1950s, mm-hmm. he was known as Little Jimmy Scott. Oh, come on, because, Little Jimmy. Because he was four foot 11 and he had just this amazing way of, of phrasing, and his, his, his whole timbre was so unique. And I was doing the overnight shift at KVNO, uh, doing jazz on the weekends. Mm-hmm. And I was playing his music at about 3.30, quarter, 4 in the morning. And I watched, oh, really? Yeah. And I watched four blobs sort of rise up out of the sidewalk and creep away. And I went and looked at it later, and there was a drain pipe there that four raccoons came up and out of. But with his <laughs> voice playing and watching that happen, it created this sort of eeriness, this otherworldly aesthetic. Let's listen to a little so the people know what you're talking about here. That bass is heavy today. This is a, this was used in the soundtrack to the David Lynch film, Twin Peaks Firewalk With Me. Yeah, here go Jimmy. You take me There is definitely an androgyny around the voice. I think so, too. I even hate to use that phrase. One of the things I was um, getting into, another one of the things I was getting into this weekend, so the Black Opera Alliance had a uh, queerness and blackness sort of summit. So just a discussion group. We're getting together just um, talking about different things. And something that I had never thought about that I, I want to spend more time with, are you familiar with the Fach system? I think, yeah, they say Fach, F-A-C-H. I don't think so. Basically, that's the system under which singers are categorized. A mezzo-soprano, a mm. lyric soprano, a, a, a opera buffa, or yeah, that's probably not one, but anyway, so in those categories, so for each one of those voice types in that Fach system are the roles. So if you want to be Pamina, off a of magic flute, mm. you know, that's in this one. If mm-hmm. you want to be Zarastro, that, you know, that's all under this one. And one of the things that's coming up is that there are 
um, men who sing very high sure. and women who sing relatively low who can sing the repertoire outside of their fach. Mm, but they mm. don't have access to that literature. Their teachers don't really push it forward. And when you really break it down, we're getting into gender because a man should not be Carmen. A, a mm-hmm. woman should not be um, Figaro and, and that, that sort of thing. I mean, I could, I could see a woman Figaro. That sounds dope. To mm. me, you know, the, the women hairstylists out there, you know, and sure. and even the male Carmen, you know, the seductor or, or whatever. So mm. when we get into how gender and how all of these, you know, rigid things uh, really limit the art. And, you know, I don't know. I was thinking about all of that as we were um, listening to Jimmy Scott here, because I'm sure there are types of songs that sure. people would not expect to hear him sing based on well, being a man. Yeah, let's let's talk about that because he had success all the way up to the early 1960s and then sort of, you know, started to fall out of favor or fall out of, of vogue. Mm-hmm. And he worked as a porter in a hotel for many, many years and he had a resurgence. As you can see, this is a 2011 track when he was working with David Lynch on that Twin Peaks film. I couldn't have picked a better Uh, song than he did at that point but when he came back and had a little resurgence he did covers of nothing compares to you by prince as done by Sinead o'connor holding back the years which was um simply red track on broadway is on here as well so uh yeah i would never have expected his voice in a song like nothing compares to you we listened to a little bit yeah totally different track yeah um, most definitely, I uh, I wonder how many porters, how many busboys, servers, how many whatever are out there that could not have the musical career that they could have because their voice doesn't match all of these rigid norms mm. that we that we build. I, I, there have to be countless. There mm. have to be countless. Maybe even some in our in our periphery some sure. folks that we see that are phenomenal musicians but we'll never know because some motherfucker wants to say well you know your voice is a little high or sure. your voice is a little anyway but you know. even you said oh look at him i didn't i didn't anticipate i didn't think he would look like that yeah i mean based on you know what you your, hear. Our, based on our conversation i was like okay well this is a man with a a, a very uh, unique beautiful voice i guess i didn't expect um the man to be older, like I, I expected. Uh, I, w- I heard a younger voice, and that's maybe that's my own bias coming out. You know, th- that's what I'm talking about. When you hear it, you don't know old, yeah. young, black, white. You know, man, yeah. woman. You don't. It's it's just a it's it's just a voice, a unique voice. I definitely am not a proponent of. Oh, I'm colorblind. I don't see color. You know, all of. So I, I'm I'm never about stripping identity and. If we can strip the identity from the music itself, mm. that's a different conversation sure. to me. You know, it's one thing to talk about the person; it's another thing to talk about the music. Anyway, we can um, we can you know uh, shoot the shit about that forever. But all right, well, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna check out some more Jimmy Scott. So little Jimmy Scott, little Jimmy Scott. So I'm gonna uh, do my best, y'all, to uh, update that Trilloquy tracks playlist. As a matter of fact, today is Monday, Tuesday, tomorrow. I'm gonna make it a point to do that. So on Wednesday, we ready. Okay, because I'm several weeks behind on that. But well, uh, as we uh, transition here into the third move, and I want to talk 
a little bit about what's going on. So the Norfolk Chamber Music Festival over at the uh, Yale Summer School is having a virtual series where they're doing all of these concerts. Well, an upcoming concert is uh, going down on Friday, July 9th. It's called Music from Troubled Times. It uh, features a, a string trio for a violin, viola, and cello, a piano trio. Um, both of these come in from the uh, Jewish perspective and, mm. you know, music during the Holocaust and, and all of, uh, you know, all those uh, horrific things. And then a piece of music, again, by Daniel Bernard Remain called Twin Stars, Diamond Variations for Diana. This is a, a world premiere. All sorts of really incredible uh, musicians here in the uh, third movement today. Uh, joining Daniel Bernard Remain and myself is Melvin Chin, the pianist who's going to be performing. He and DBR are friends. They've been collaborating on this piece, had uh, lots of conversations. So I think it's going to be a a really powerful composition, you know, mm. for, for, for folks who haven't been with us. We've been talking about DBR a lot. You know, they didn't, uh, there were certain singers who didn't want to sing um, the lyrics, God damn America. So I'm sure there are going to be some, some spicy conversation, some spicy conversation, some spicy things happening here. Um, during the conversation, one of the things we talk about is that the uh, title for this piece of music, Twin Stars, was actually changed. So I wonder what I should have I should have asked him what the first title was. Mm. Maybe it was a spicy title, but in the moment we were talking about um, really something else. But anyway, uh, DBR has been going through so much from you know the the internet social media stuff that woman who we had to get together a couple weeks ago wrote that article sure. about him and calling him a race baiter so i i just started by asking dbr look how are you are you okay are you keeping things together and he uh responds by talking about all that's around us. There's just catastrophe all around us, and that's what was pervasive in his mind, and that's where we got the conversation started. So uh, to get us into the third movement, I wanted to share a uh, DBR performance. I went through all sorts of recordings and went back in the uh, back in the catalog and found one called Black Man Singing in Echo Mountain, a really beautiful feature of DBR's voice and uh, musicianship to get us into uh, the third movement. So here's a little bit of that. Here's my conversation with Melvin Chin and Daniel Bernard Remain. You know, I do feel okay. Where my mind is at this morning is I'm thinking about South Florida and in the middle of the night, a building came down. I'm thinking about mm. um, they just discovered a mass grave in Canada full of young indigenous right. children. Um, I'm thinking about um, the last moments of young girls, um, one as young as nine months old in Alabama, um, engulfed in a 
terrible um, traffic accident that turned into an inferno. Mm. Um, so with all of that um, on my mind right now, I'm also thinking about a young 10-year-old boy that came out of the rubble in, in, in South Florida. I'm thinking about my responsibility and my role um, in life at a time of mass death when there ha- when hasn't there been mass death yeah and I'm thinking about the work and I'm thinking about people like uh, Melvin Chen who allows me to um, create work that speaks to well not just death but life actually speaks mm-hmm. to life yeah. yeah you've you've got me thinking about I don't know if either of you are watching the show Loki but there's this theme yeah. about hiding oh yes and- I am Hiding and, hiding, oh, great. Hiding in tragedy. So, you know, that idea of this big catastrophe being a, a place that's a safe space for certain people, which is a, a weird thing to think about. I wonder um, if there's any I'm so glad the, that both of you watched that show. I wonder if there's any um, uh, any ideas there, any context there as far as having to work in the midst of all of these catastrophic things that are happening all around us. Well, uh, well. First of all, um, this is Marvel's first queer character. Is that right? I think so. Officially, yeah. We we found that out last I don't night. Want, oh, yeah. I shouldn't be. Sorry. <laughs> spoiler, oh, alert. spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Sorry. Okay. So let's let me pull back. I haven't watched that episode yeah. yet. <laughs> oh, sorry. Sorry. Okay. But um, this is so funny. We're, we're geeking out right now. I was watching it with my son just just yes last night. Yeah. I think that um, what I find provocative about the show and the storytelling of it is this notion of time as something almost divine, right? Mm-hmm. Or something, or maybe another way to think of, to look at it is that that what what we thought might be divine is actually these kind of framers or harbor or or uh, caretakers of time. I can't remember the three. I can't remember their specific name in the show, but. Mm-hmm. That, you know, that what we thought was autonomy in our lives, what we thought was choices that we were making was was actually someone else's plan. And to deviate from it meant that you were, again, I can't remember the name, but I can't remember the name of the, the deviation from your timeline. Anyway, sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but um, I, I, I guess I guess to think about this in, succinctly and, and in different ways, I, you know, I'm 50 years old. What I'm thinking about is how precious each day is. And in that, again, as a composer, every commission, every work that I write, everything, every engagement with every performer, for me, particularly as a father, becomes consequential because of time, because I feel that it's a gift. And I don't know, none of us know, right, when our time will come. So in that, I do think that um, commissions and our choices around them become fixed in time. Because as a composer, for me, once I'm gone, in, in a lot of ways, the only thing that's going to remain will be the music. Mm-hmm. Melvin, do, do you feel that sense of urgency, that, that sense of importance that, you know, I think Daniel is speaking to there? I mean, uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, <laughs> I, my wife, I mean, Daniel, I think we're about the same age. I'm 50, 51, I'm 51, actually. And, um, I would say almost every day, my wife and I look at each other and say, "Like, how do we get so old?" <laughs> you know? And I think my I hear you on that. my my uh, the way I think about life is that from the beginning of life to to age thirty feels like forever, right? It feels like it, you'll hmm. never get to age thirty, right? And and after age thirty and on, all you're thinking about is like, how is time going so fast? <laughs> you know? And so I feel like I'm at the point now where uh 
you you realize that you you have a limited time and you start thinking about what you need to be doing with that time and how to make best use of it and and so i think the urgency is there i think when especially in the midst of tragedy as we were talking about like it makes um the feeling even more urgent and and the need to respond to things that are happening uh the the need to to try to make a difference, I think, is 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 what drives you know what drives us at this point. Yeah, and that idea of time moving, you know, at the same pace but seemingly different based on our circumstances, I think, is something important to point out when we talk about those who uh, the victims of you know police brutality have left behind. I've been thinking a lot, obviously, you know, in preparation for this con conversation about um, Diamond and uh, Diana, how time must have held still in that moment, how time must be, you know, something crazy for them to think about since, you know, the murder of, of Philando Castile. Daniel, with so many types of catastrophes surrounding us, why that one? What, 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 uh, inspired you to, to write this piece of music in honor of, of those two women? Um, because I saw it as a particularly, well, okay, so two things here. If you look at it through a, a, a racial filter, meaning the, I'm not even sure what race actually the, um, uh, the officer was. His, his name was um, um, Ger Ger Geronimo, I think. Right, you know, right. His names are, so I'm not from, he might actually be Lat Latino. <laughs> I'm not sure, or Latinx, or you know, I'm not. I'm not sure. Um, Geronimo Yunez, maybe. I'm, I'm not sure. But um, but beyond the, this trope of a um, black man and a um, um, uh, uh, non-black uh, male mm -hmm. law enforcement officer, and and what I call this kind of uh, lethal intimacy, a lethal pas de deux. Once I got past that, I started realizing this was an American family. They got up together, presumably. They brushed their teeth. They took a shower. They had breakfast. They got in the car. They started driving down the road. Mm -hmm. I did that thousands of times with my mom and dad in the back seat. And, you know, and just talking about time, you know, we get, remember, remember being four, well, four years old? She's four years old. Uh, da Diana. Um, Dana. Dana. Four years old Dana, in the back you. seat, and you're looking up at your parents, and they look like gods. And I remember being back there with my blankie, and I used to call it slashla. I would suck on a little piece <laughs> of plastic, and you know, this, I don't know what it called. Anyways, I had this nervous tick, but I just remember being in the back of my when I called my father's car, dad's car, right? Well, that's that's the way I remember it. My mother actually doesn't drive. But I felt safe back there. That's the thing. I felt safe. And it was an adventure. We were going to go somewhere, whether it was ice cream or church or whatever it was. I, it was, a you know, that car and that American road and seeing, you know, the back of my dad's head and my mom and seeing them talk. And sometimes, the, you know, the best part was I would pretend I was sleeping because I could hear them talking about me and or my sisters. Mm -hmm. It was just, you know, outside of my crib or my bedroom, I guess, that's where I felt most safe. And what attracted me to the story was the fact that so many violations, so much trauma happened in those seven shots. Right. And, you know, as you describe the safety you would feel in your dad's backseat, I'm thinking about that little girl and that mother in a different 
backseat. I, I came across today that brutal footage of, and, and I wrote it down, the little girl saying, please don't take them off, referring to the handcuffs. I don't want you to get shooted. And I can barely read that without getting choked up. I mean, that as a father, that has to be, there has to be so much there that you've poured into this piece of music. I, I will just say that it speaks to the divine, heroic, incredible strength of black women, and in this case, Diamond, <laughs> the names, the names, that to witness what is the coming death of her partner, seven shots, five entered his body. And I think that's important. He, you know, at point blank range, talk about poor officer training. Right. He missed, two of them missed, right? But through it all, she has the, Diamond has the, the strength to start documenting. At one point, she's actually calming everybody down, including the murderer, including the officer, including her child in the backseat, including Philando, including us, an online audience. It is one of the most incredible moments of humanity at a time of, of, and simultaneous to that, a time of inhumanity, mm. that they did not see him other than a threat. They didn't hear his words, and you're right, that after all of that, and by the way, if you watch the whole thing, Officer Jimenez, I can't remember, I, I should know his name, sorry, um, uh, Geronimo, he has to be consoled by another officer. He's freaking out the whole time. You know, he's really a combination of distraught and shocked, and it, it's just, it's a very kind of bizarre reaction, and he still has this loaded gun on her and everybody in the car. But to, to not have the humanity, to not be humane enough to say, you know, I just did something wrong, and you can see it exhibited in his body, the, the officer who committed this murder, and to put them in a car, to put them in handcuffs, meaning uh, Diamond mm -hmm. and, and have her child. I mean, that's what is just so perverse and wrong in all of the training. How is this person a threat? And, and to not have the notion to immediately console her, the same way, by the way, they were consoling this officer. Mm -hmm. Paul, you're right. I think that's what what drew me to this story. And I'm so and you know, Melvin and I, we talked to, we talked for over a year about this. My original approach, and this is important to your question, Garrett, my original approach was to go right after this officer. I think I think the original title was something along the lines of the 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 murder or the assassination of Philando Castile by the coward mm. officer Geronimo Sarr and so forth. I had a lot of rage. I still do. Even in this moment, you've kind of conjured that up. I had a lot of rage. That, and this shows you the importance of words, Mark Bamuti Joseph's libretto quelled and changed and completely changed the music, completely changed the piece. It's a beautiful libretto, yeah. I have to say. Melvin, what's your, you know, it's one thing to talk about your relationship with the broader issue of, of police brutality, but what's your relationship with um, putting... Uh, or the or the feelings behind putting this sort of music on a stage for presumably a predominantly white audience. How do you how do you think about the implications, and you know how do you come to make the decisions that you've made when it comes to when it came to this collaboration? Well, I mean, I think first of all, you know, <laughs> I've known Daniel a long time. I know what he. I you know I like him as a person. I like his music. Um, I feel like, you know my role as the kind of commissioner of the piece is to let Daniel have the freedom 
to do to express what he wants to express right and um you know i do remember daniel we had a conversation about the title because you had sent me the title and (laughs) i was like "Hmm, let me (laughs) i mean i would say huh that's pretty provocative so i called daniel we had a conversation about it and it was clear actually that the title was had been thought through it wasn't just something he just came up with and slapped on the page like Mm -hmm. like he had thought through it there were reasons he you know you daniel you there are reasons you you came up with it you know there are references to other other works in it and so i after i had the conversation you know i understood what he was coming from and you know i wasn't going to change it right like if that's what he wanted to do It was fine. It was fine with me because I knew that this was not an impulsive decision. That title, I knew that it was considered, that it was thoughtful, and you know, if people didn't like it, you know, that's fine. <laughs> that was fine with me. You know, and so, so, um, so we had. A, I mean, we had a conversation about it, and I knew where he was coming from, and and I said fine, you know, and then. The, the pandemic hit because this was in 2019. This was actually mm-hmm. before George Floyd, before any of this was, was happened. Right. And it was going to be premiered in the summer of 2020 and, you know, the pandemic hit and we had to cancel the the thing. And so I would say this piece has had a longer gestation period than we, we had hoped for, but, you know, now having seen the piece, like it's going to be, it's going to be great. And so I, you know, I don't know what what happened in between where we had the discussion about the title and and what it is now, but you know, I was happy either way. <laughs> Would it have been a different piece, Daniel, if that 2020 premiere uh, did happen? Let's pretend that George Floyd mm. you know, did not die and there was there was no COVID. Have there been other evolutions of this piece of music, considering the unforeseen catast- uh, catastrophes that were ahead of you, uh, ahead uh, of us all? In a word, yes, it would have been an entirely different piece. And I, I really want to credit Melvin and Yale and the Norfolk Chamber Festival with being patient, supportive, uh, loving during what was a difficult time. I mean, Melvin, you're, you're reminding me, you know, Melvin and I, we talked sometimes multiple times in a week mm-hmm. during the height of the pandemic. We went through um, what happened with George Floyd. We went through what happened with Breonna Taylor. We went through this um, incident with um, Fernando Castillo and his family. So we, and we talked a lot at length, um, we, we, at sometimes with students, sometimes with Alpha Dworkin from uh, the mm-hmm. Sphinx uh, competition. But Melvin and I, text messages, we, we became very, very close, uh, closer during a time where um, there was um, so much fear and so much uncertainty and, you know, as a composer being commissioned by a prestigious um, festival um, that has its own history and its own um, desire and aspirations towards change and diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, I, I can't say enough how um, um, comforting it was to have such a strong, in sometimes, in some ways, emotional partner mm-hmm. through you know a piece that, that kind of had to change, you know, in a way. And and I'll say this, Garrett. I mean, you know, this thinking about I'll, I'll I can read a little bit at a certain point from the libretto, but sure. just thinking about the program notes. So this this happened on July 6, twenty sixteen, mm-hmm. right? Um, um, I th- I've always felt that musical scores, all musical scores, are a type of cultural documentation, 
right? And I know you understand that, you know, you're for our listeners who don't know, and you should. Uh, Garrett is a brilliant musician, an incredible musician, who's who, who uh, incredible professional musician who, who has worked with so many composers and in so many orchestras and in ensembles worldwide. So I know you know that when you're looking at a part and when you're when you're a part of a larger orchestral score, you're you're kind of playing through a ty- in, in a in a real way a kind of living history, mm-hmm. right? You're playing the same notes that somebody played sometimes, you know, one, two, three hundred years before you did. So that's why it's so important, I think, for me as a black composer to create works that even in the title, even in the program notes, even in the notes, speak to what happened so that we don't forget, so that we can try to evolve, and, that, and most importantly to me, so that we can honor. You know, Diana, this little four-year-old girl now, is, is nine, perhaps mm-hmm. ten years old. Mm-hmm. And as the libretto does, and I'm thinking about that ten-year-old boy that was pulled from the rubble this morning, you know, in so many ways, uh, sorry, uh, let me just be real cool right now. I do think about my child. I do think about children. I do think about children who are faced looking at uh, or, or have deep fear, deep trauma. Who is whispering in their ear? Mm-hmm. You know, who is giving them comfort? Whether or not you believe in the divine, um, I think that's what Mark did in this libretto, and that's what I tried to do in the piece. The piece roars at time and rocks, but it begins in whisper. And, and, and so much of this is about also, it's very important, Melvin's playing. I really wrote the piano part for Melvin and for his playing, all of it. The tenacity and virtuosity, but the tenderness too. The intimacy, the relationship between the two of you is sort of a, a recurring theme. And I know it plays a huge role in this piece of music. I wonder, and I'll, I'll throw this at you, Melvin, I wonder how that intimacy, that, uh, that vulnerab- vulnerability can come through to the audience, it's I, I, we're gonna, you know, those of us in the in the circle, certainly the two of you are gonna love it, no matter what. How how are you planning to get that intimacy, that power, all of those emotions to again this predominantly white audience, an audience that might not have the relationship with the issue at hand that Daniel has? I, well, I I mean, I don't think I need to do anything, right? I need to I need to just play the music, and I think the music will speak for itself. I don't think. I don't think it matters that this is a black composer, uh, you know, if, if a white person is listening to it. I think I think the music is powerful enough that it will it will move the audience. Um, so I think I mean, I think that's what music does, you know, of, of any culture. <laughs> Great music will will move who, whoever's listening to it. So I don't feel like I need to do anything special, you know, whether it's a white audience or a black audience. We just like my feeling, my responsibility is to give the best performance that I can of the piece. And I like I'm sure I'm sure the music will speak for itself. I don't you know, like I'm not worried sure. about that. Sure. And the only reason that I, you know, bring up identity when it comes to audiences, because I think this is, you know, a story, uh, a uh, how can I say a response to a story that so many people need to hear. But the people that I want to hear just aren't in those spaces. It's something that I can't shake. It's something that I don't not think about. No, I, I think that's a very important point, actually. And I and I think that. um you know, part of how we're, you know, part of what we want to do, I mean, <laughs> we, this is a huge question, right? I mean, so we, we could talk hours about this, but I think part of um, marketing this piece 
whether it's at Norfolk or whether we're doing it somewhere else, is that we need to find a, a different kind of audience than normally listens to classical music because this this piece will will speak to them, right? And you know, it's my my opinion that like classical music will speak to them too, right? But they but there's so much kind of baggage surrounding it at this point that that we need to break down those barriers first. Um, I will say that um, Daniel's premiere, um, I've paired it. The program I've called is like music from troubled times, right? And I've paired it with a, a string trio of Gideon Klein, who wrote this trio while we'll use in a concentration camp and with the Shostakovich piano trio, which also has references to the Holocaust, right? So to to um, place Daniel's work, I think, in context is important, right? I, I think it's not not right to just have Daniel's work alone aside, you know, by itself somewhere else. I think it's important to place it um, within the tradition, within the lineage of, of you know, classical music because that's where it belongs um, and also to kind of have the audience think about you know what is the kind of music that that can arise um, from oppression like what is the, what are different people's response to that and Daniel's um, will be placed in conversation with these other pieces that also have been written written under you know oppressive circumstances yeah <clears throat> yeah, excuse me. Yeah, Daniel, I know that your music has uh, been in conversation, as Melvin says, with many of the uh, composers of the past. Do you ever think about what it might be like to be in verbal conversation with these composers and, and compare, you know, maybe I shouldn't use the word compare, but to share their stories uh, next to your story, next to our story? Sure. I mean, uh, sometimes I give a very arrogant answer. <laughs> To be honest, sometimes <laughs> I've said Beethoven's dead, but I'm alive. <laughs> All right. So take that as you want. You know, Beethoven's <laughs> sure. dead, y'all. You know, you cannot talk to him, but I am alive. I know we love to say that, oh, you know, that's something we, you know, Bach, you know, speaks to me. And actually, he doesn't. He's right. dead. <laughs> I can speak to you, though. <laughs> I, know, I know the music might move you in a certain way, but I can actually speak to you. In fact, I know many, many black composers. I know many composers. Okay. But that said, no, I get it. And you know what? To be humbled in this moment, I'm thinking about my work at the New Jersey Symphony Orchestra where I do have a curatorial role. And it's heavy in classical music because I'm now, you know, you got to be careful what you wish for or, you know, who you protest against in a way because now I'm in a position where I have to work within an organization, with other musicians, with an audience that has specific needs and wants. Part of that is tradition. Part of that is innovation. Part of that is the past. Part of that is the now. Can you speak to both of those things? I think you can. I've tried to do that in the New Jersey Symphony Orchestra. And quite frankly, I've tried to do that in this piece. In just a minute, let me geek out a little bit since we're kind of geeky today. Sure, and yeah. talk about the first six chords of this piece. I can kind of describe it to you. And I'm not giving mm -hmm. anything away. But the piece is constructed on two arias and then two variations on those arias. Um, I'm, I'm echoing in one of them the Goldberg variations, the aria from the Goldberg variations. But in the very first aria, I was actually thinking about kind of um, almost – Country music, in a way. Maybe Ray mm. Charles' take on country music. The sure. first chord is a D major chord. The next chord is a five of four. 
And some of the for, for some for your audience, some of this might 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 not mean anything. But imagine a D major chord, and then the next thing is a C natural in that chord, and it wants to mm-hmm. move somewhere. And and, th- and what I just described is so typical of country music, gospel music, um, laid back soul music. The next chord after that is a four chord, five or four. Sorry, the next chord after that is a four chord, then a minor four chord, <laughs> then the, then the minor two chord. Then a mm. minor five. That was my, ooh, I'm not going to do the major five. Mm. Okay, so the yeah. first six things that happen here is very soft, and the strings are, it's just the strings and Melvin, and they're doing straight up tertian, nothing complicated or, you know, that kind of modernistic music that some of your listeners might have in their heads. No, it's, if you didn't know any better, this might be the beginning of, of a piece by Patsy Cline. <laughs> Written by Willie Nelson. It starts off as cool and as almost like a summer breeze, you know, maybe 6.46 at night, you know, maybe 8, 9 o'clock. We had a strawberry moon last night because the title of the piece is Twin Stars. Oh, and Mark talks about... Uh, let me just, well, with that little bit of a geek out, let me just say the first line of the piece. What follows next after the strings? Well, let me take a step back, Garrett, and just say that I do think Mozart's music is all of it is about opera. All of it is about the introduction yeah, of characters. Yeah. I always think about that, right? I don't know who said that quote, but I, I love that. So I'm introducing the band <laughs> together. Together. And then the singer comes in, and the first thing they say is actually the last part of the libretto. I'm going first, it's all about the celestial, the cycle. Mm-hmm. And the first thing the singer says after that, those six measures is justice running on twin tracks, parallel lives, on one, her American father exercises his rights and shouts a glance at the stars in June. Says, look, little girl, the stars are in Gemini. We're just like them. Black matter, light, shining. It's a miracle, isn't it, little girl? We've been here before. We've been here before, before, here before i mean ah, I, I just that's mark man it's beautiful and and, and just to it's beautiful. vet that out a little bit he's talking about we as a country have been here before the trope of the black man being shot but he's also talking about look little girl look up at the stars we've been here before black matter carl sagan right dust and i'm with you i'm right here with you Man, Garrett, this podcast is supposed to be cool. You're gonna make me cry, brother. Let me let me just stop for a second. Let me just stop. Oh man, those are, those are beautifully moving words. Well, M- Melvin, let me let me ask you this. You know, we we have you know again a, a mix of the uh, so-called tradition. I hate to say traditional classical music. I don't like that, but you know, for for the sake of this conversation, we we have the comparisons that we can make and the context that we can put around the. Uh, the music theory and the chord structure. We have the emotions of the um, libretto and of course how it will be beautifully performed. This is one moment. And I know everyone's going to leave the concert and feel like they've really done something or they've really engaged something. But, you know, for you, what's what's the bigger picture? Giving space to this piece of music is a means towards what? 
well i yeah i think that um everyone you know i think first of all i think we all got into classical music because we we love the music right i think there there's no question about that i think that what all of us have to wrestle with now is the fact that whatever you call the tradition of classical music is primarily dead white european men right there's no you, you can't there's no disputing that right and mm. the question is how do you how can you move forward in in a way with that legacy understanding that that's what the legacy is and also understanding that that's not what the world is um so I think Daniel's piece is, a, is, of course, part of a larger project. I would say that we need to we need to um, embark on, so that you know we're not stuck in this dead white European male tradition, right? <laughs> right. That may be the past, but that that should not be the future. Um, and I think Daniel's piece is one step in that direction. I think um, you know the rest of the programming for the summer, I, I've tried to kind of um, expand the boundaries of what it is. I think, first of all, with, with classical music, there's the there's the, the problem, right? Um, whether it's said explicitly or not, and it has been said explicitly that whatever you call classical music is like the best form of music, right? right. I right. mean, that, that, that's like the, you know, that's what people say. And so I think part of it is just for, for classical musicians to take a step back and recognize, look, there's like a whole universe of great music. Classical music is like one star in that in that in that spectrum, right? And so we need to recognize that 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 there are many many types of other great musics from other cultures all around the world, and that we're we're just we we belong in that in that rainbow of of, of great music. Um, the the other thing we have to recognize is that because we come from a legacy of Europe, white European males, we have to try harder so that going forward, if that is not the case, mm -hmm. right? And that means we have, to me, that means you have to find examples of, well, <laughs> there are different things. One is that you have to be conscious of um, the great, what, what we consider the great composers of the past. We have to be conscious of why they were great and what other talented musicians, whether they're musicians of color, women, you know, the ways in which they were excluded, right? Um, and so moving forward, what I want to do with the with my programming is to, to recognize that um, we need to move forward in a different way than we have, which is not to say we shouldn't, I, I'm not, I don't think we, sh we should throw away the music we love, right? But we need to place it in a more, self-conscious context to to understand what are the reasons they became great and what are the reasons that other people were not afforded those same opportunities so um so for example in the programming there's a there's in a different um program i'm doing an all french program right and um this the the last piece on the program is a very famous piece by foray of piano quartet every you know most people know that everyone likes that but to show like the 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 kind of French music that people may not have known, right? I, I'm starting with a quartet by Joseph Ballone, 
and then then going to a, a piano trio by Germaine Taillefer. Right. Uh, yep. She's a, a women. You know, so Lacey's, I think yeah. like those kinds of things, like to place people who have, you know, that people don't think of, but probably but need to be in there <laughs> to place them again, like in the same way um, I'm doing with Daniel's piece in conversation with the pieces that we know. I think basically the. I look at it as a, in a in a positive way, right? Like, it would be better if there were more music that we could love, right? And there's a lot of music for whatever reason that's really good that we don't know, right? And it's I it's not my job to to say to the audience this is great music that you should think is great. My my job I feel is to bring these composers, you know, like Daniel, like uh, you know. Samuel Coleridge Taylor, who actually visited Norfolk in 1906 and had a premiere done there, um, to present that music, um, to to say that it's music that needs to be heard, right? And then to let people decide, is this music I want to hear again? This is my challenge with that, uh, Daniel. I feel like our music is always accompanied. We have to we have to be in that space with the you know foray with the the uh the the tie affair i mean and i think you touched on this a little bit when you were talking about your collaborations uh in in new jersey i mean how do you how do you traverse that you know really steering the ship but i don't know uh, responding to folks like me who say the ship isn't being steered uh drastically enough <laughs> you know well well okay um yes so maybe another way to look at it is where are the moments in society, in culture, where black people and white people come together? Sorry, that's Zachary down there. There's Ludigo, <laughs> just life. He's on. He's no, doing that's his great. baseball game online. You know, whatever it is. Okay, but I, you know, so because I think that that's important because I think that um, there there aren't many, and at least in my, I mean, at least in my experience. There are not that many places where that happens. I mean, I think about um, places of religion. Mm -hmm. I do think about commercial outdoor concerts. But even Bob Marley struggled, right? Sure. We know Bob Marley yep. struggled and Prince struggled to find and cultivate a black audience right. or a BIPOC audience, as we might say. So there aren't that many places, quite frankly, in, from, at least in my experience, where uh, BIPOC people, I should say, and non-BIPOC people, or maybe another way to look at it, where are the places where race doesn't matter and we come together and we celebrate? Where are those places? Um, I know that um, when, uh, it, and, and again, just going full circle, whenever tragedy comes, it seems that that's a place where there can be um, a, a rally, Right. Um, so when, when we look at it that way, that's one reason why we have to kind of mitigate and manage, you're right, the kind of cultural contextualization of our work. Mm -hmm. Quite frankly, most classical concerts, most um, uh, um, um, uh, classical experiences I have had, I am one of few black people in the hall, whether it's as a soloist, as a conductor, as a con as a composer, or as an audience member, right. you know, I often say, for me, playing my voodoo violin concerto is, in some ways, in some ways, 
some of the most wonderful and painful moments of my life. I'm surrounded by people who don't look like me. And again, for our audience, I used to look much more like you, Garrett. I, <laughs> I, I, I don't like to talk about it, but, you know, because I don't want to talk about, like, you know, glory days or something. <laughs> but I, I look different. I looked different. And by that, I mean my hair and my piercings and everything about me was was in some ways antithetical and antithetical to the perception of the staid uh, European or the staid composer, however you want to say it. So to be on stage, you know, with long hair, playing voodoo violin concerto with an amplified seven-string instrument was very difficult <laughs> because to my behind me was pretty much a monolithically white orchestra, and in front of me was pretty much a monolithically white audience. But I also understand the privilege mm. in a very real way of that position. Now, I'm old enough now, I am 50 years old, to understand my role and responsibility and all that, to understand other people's roles and responsibilities and all that. And I know that we're trying, just as you were saying before, Garrett, and, and speaking to Melvin's, role and responsibility to this chamber, the Norfolk Chamber Music Festival, is that we're trying to build a new audience for not only new, new, new music, but I think new ideas. Yeah, yeah. And look, we can, we, can, we can make it real simple. I don't think in the canon anywhere, and I could be wrong, I hope I am, this is audacious to say, I don't think there's any piece right now that is speaking to or honoring what happened to Philando Castile. It may be the only one. And that's not a boast. That's just where we are right, right now. Right, right. Before I let uh, Daniel have the last word, uh, Melvin, how can folks learn more about this concert in particular and the entire series? Well, um, this summer, unfortunately, we're not having our, our performances in person with an in-person audience. Um, but we are streaming all the concerts and, uh, you know, for no charge. And so anyone who wants to see any of the concerts can go to norfolkmusic.org and the stream will be up on there. It'll be up on YouTube, but, but norfolkmusic.org will have all the information on Daniel's piece as well as the rest of the summer. Thank you. Thank you very much. So I wanted to, you know, round, round everything out, coming back full circle, you know, Daniel, you're beginning, you know, listing off all of these catastrophes, you know, the people are hurting, we are all hurting, we are not okay, even uh, beyond the physical, mental health is uh, a bigger conversation than it's, it's ever been, at least in my memory. Can you offer some words? to us, to, to the person trying to press through, you know, maybe they can't press through with music because they're not composers, you know, maybe it's sports, maybe it's writing, wh whatever. What are your words to, you know, pressing through using our talents to get through this time that's been so catastrophic for so many of us? Well, I'll, I'll say, two, I'll say two things and, and thank you for just, thank you for your work. Thank you for allowing um, this, this very important platform to happen. These podcasts are part of the antidote to the ills of the world, I would say. Your voice and the love behind it, uh, your commitment and vision towards our communities, all of our communities, is really important. And Melvin, I say the same thing to you. You're, you're an educator and a father and a leader and a musician and, a, 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 I would say, a cultural um, care carekeeper. Um, so, you know, our, our, we're not first responders, but I would like to think we're second or third or fourth, right? So the first thing I'll say is that I, I want to just, I, I'll just, I'll talk from the program notes. Um, 
I tried to express the shock and horror and sadness, but also that warm spiritual spiritual embrace when as a parent, all you ever want to do is comfort your child. I would like to think that even in, in even in those spaces of death, as Philando's soul was leaving his body, he found a way to his family, to his daughter, and whispered into her ear, it's a miracle, isn't it, little girl? We've been here before, around in circles. Look, little girl, the stars are in Gemini, and we're just like them. I'm right here with you. I'm right here with you. I hope you find something in the moment and in this music to keep you safe and starry-eyed looking up at the moon and stars. So those are the program notes. And I, and I think they speak to this moment where you wake up and you realize in the middle of the night last night, somewhere in, in South Florida, the walls came down. And somehow in all of that death, a 10-year-old little boy cried out, and was comforted and pulled from the wreckage on the back of a first responder. And, you, you know, I, I have to believe that beyond trauma, beyond horror, there are those moments like a concert that are not trivial. They bind us together. They bring us together. We, we, we look at the screen and then we look up at the stars, sometimes at a strawberry moon, and it's, it's what keeps us human. I think we're, we have gone through a kind of cultural hibernation. And now we're coming back into something where we need to maybe redefine excellence, redefine culture, and redefine, recommit to those ideas that are so foundational and so fundamental to who we all are as one another. And this sounds very story-eyed, and, and, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not a Pollyanna looking at the world through rose-colored glasses. Rather, the glasses are off. Mm. And I'm aspiring in my work and in myself to something beyond the body, you know? And, and where does race happen when, you know, the soul is all that remains? That's where I'm trying to be, believe it or not. And, and I, I do feel that the role and responsibility of the living artist right now is to speak to joy, honor those that we have lost, and to move together hand in hand, even with people who don't want to touch you or see you or hear you. And if we can all do that, well, then we will um, rise maybe into the stars. Um, looking up, looking up, looking up. I'll leave it there. Like yeah, I said that on purpose. Just like Scott Joplin. Curtis Mayfield, and Isaac Hayes, and Bill T. Jones. You see how DBR is uh, just not limited when it comes to musical perspective, to shout-outs. Uh, shout he used to have hair similar to mine. Uh, not, not anymore. Indeed. You know, time happens. But, yes, it does. You know, all, all forms of us are beautiful. Um, I, I, the first time I... Uh, Met and I and I you know used that word in air quotes because I was just hearing him speak was at 
a Sphinx conference. So again, you know, shout out to Sphinx. A, a lot of stuff happens at that conference. Uh, DBR one year was um, like a keynote interviewee with Aaron Dworkin. And that's yeah. when I learned about his collaborations with uh, Lady Gaga. When I was on the radio um, at NPR, one of, my <laughs> one of my favorite things to put in in the middle of the night, he, uh, DBR, recorded an arrangement of what is that piece of music by Philip Glass? A uh, metamorphosis, metamorphosis one for a piano and violin. DBR playing violin, you know, just a really serene. I, I encourage everybody to go um, look for that. DBR is the real deal, and I'm I'm rooting for him. I'm really rooting for him. So shout out to him and congratulations to Melvin Chin and everyone else over at the Norfolk Chamber Music Festival. I want to thank Janet for um, making the connection and uh, getting the interview together. I'm going to check out the conversation. I mean, the conversation, the uh, performance on July 9th. I'll have a link to more of that information in the description of this. Before we get into the um, triloquy, Scott, one of the things that, again, uh, Daniel Melvin and I were talking about was all of the catastrophe that surround us. We sort of connected it to uh, Loki, which, you know, uh, many of us are watching these days, the mm-hmm. way hiding and catastrophe works, works there. I was wondering about the idea of finding opportunity or growth in catastrophe. I think about myself, you know, losing my job last year on the surface to a lot of people, you know, may have seemed like a catastrophe and I can understand that, but my uh, resume is so much more diverse now. And there are just many ways in which that sort of catastrophe has been one that I can grow something out of and, and focus on different things and, and continue to sustain myself, you know, without a boss. I don't, I don't suspect that I will be jobless forever, but that sort of, catastrophe that that event that seemed like a catastrophe ended up something to be something different so i wonder if you had any ideas on you know hiding in catastrophe or finding opportunity or growth in just what can seem like the most horrible of situations maybe i should change my thinking to opportunity or living in catastrophe because uh i have become so self-reliant Mm-hmm. over the last 15 years that when catastrophe happens there typically is no one else around to help sure so sure i have gotten into a spot where tragedy catastrophe happens and i'd go well let's suit up got to now this now we have to get through this yeah i don't know um maybe i need to work on my trust maybe i have trust issues you have been uh, watching Loki, haven't you? I have. What you think? You you you're the comic book person from back back when. I'm really interested in where they will put this in the timeline. Because oh, how they, all, yeah, yeah, because yeah. they say that the TVA time moves differently. So all of this could be going, you know, kind of. And Rick and Morty. One of the uh, writers on Rick and Morty is working on Loki. Oh, I see. Uh, Waldrop, I think, is his last mm. name, and. Um, I think uh, I'm curious how they're going to place this because maybe all of this stuff is happening, you know, wicked fast. And but they already said that he couldn't get back into the timeline. So I don't know. I don't know what direction we'll they're going to go with it. Every time they say TVA, I think about Tennessee Valley Authority. That's what's right? in my mind. <laughs> you know, uh, I heard some guy giving it a review, and he said it's not the Tennessee Valley Authority, like you want to think. Yeah. All right. Well. 
one of the things that DBR mentioned in the interview that I was so glad to hear, it was affirming for me to hear someone else say it. DBR talked about Mozart and talked about how when you think about music by Mozart, it's all opera, even if it's not opera. Right. You know, right. Um, the middle movement of the piece of music that we all hate to love and love to hate, you know, the bassoon concerto, the melody for the middle movement and the, you know, the bassoon solo part is an aria, actually. I right. forget the other um, opera it's in, but that was really cool. So in, in that spirit, I, I, I found a trill in the, uh, in the Mozart uh, bassoon concerto to get us into our fourth movement Hit here. Me. Frank Morelli playing bassoon there, my my sort of grand teacher. He was Lacolian's teacher, so <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know you could have that. Cool. I'm enjoying thinking about finding trills in the repertoire. It's been a, an impetus for me to go back into the Western uh, classical repertoire because I've been kind of rejecting it here for a, a few months for I my own that. for my own self. Mm-hmm. But it's good to. To get back into it, I'm I'm just not going to center it. That's the problem. We center that, but that's not what we're here to talk about this week in the triloquy. All right, my here's my first thing. <clears throat> I'm gonna do two quick things and we're done. The world is open, <laughs> and so is racism. Listen, I uh, Dell and I have uh, in the past couple weeks, you know, been trying to make an effort to not be hermits and go out. So we've probably been to about 10, 12 bars at this point, and at a few of them. Every time I cut on some rap music, every time I turn on some hip hop on these virtual jukeboxes and things, you have bartenders, you have folks that work there. I'm not talking about just customers or, you know, whatever. I'm talking about folks that work there, either scrubbing the systems of this music or making faces or assuring other white patrons that, okay, it's, it's okay. This won't, this won't last too long. Just take your mind somewhere else. Like they're being abused or something. And after being indoors for so long, this stuff is more profound to me. I I see it so much more. I don't know if there, if, if there are, you know, Little problematic things that you've seen in your comings and goings just since the world is open. But I, I just want to quickly say I want to uh, affirm all of the folks that see these things and challenge you to say something about it. Just like we were talking about Pink Zuckerman mm-hmm. earlier. If you are in a public space, it is your job to intervene. And I know some people will say, well, I'm not here for that. I'm here for a drink. I'm here for dinner. I don't know. That's, that's, how, that's how this stuff gets perpetuated. So... If, that's my first little thing. If a if a person doesn't like hip hop, does that make that doesn't make them racist out of hand? No, but we all know the language. We all know the the dog whistle language that surrounds this music. Again, I'm trying not to say that word that that n word, but we feel that, and I I hate to be gaslit into thinking that racism is not a thing when we have. We've we've experienced that. Is if you don't if you don't like a song, then it just passes by, and it's not like we're dealing with eye rolls or or whatever. It you know well, we were somewhere, um, uh, and Dell heard it. I didn't hear it, and the and uh, some Drake came on, and the bartender uh, told somebody at the somebody else at the bar. Well, you know, 
sometimes we listen to this type of music in a way that was, it'll be over soon, don't worry, Mm. we'll get back to the white classics soon. Mm. I understand that not liking hip-hop doesn't mean you're racist, but I know the internalized you know, slick racism when I see it, especially again, like I said, after being in the house for so long, coming outside, it's, it's apparent to me. It's, it's apparent to me. So that's, that's, I I, I want to, I I wasn't trying to challenge you. I was just, I was just saying that, you know, I mean, I, I don't like all rap music. Sure. I don't like all rap music. You know, I don't think anybody does, but my point is that we have to, more actively recognize these little microaggressions that we're alleging aren't big deals, but are to okay. some people. I, I was just, I was just curious. That's, just... That, that's all I'm saying. And, and maybe if I'm going over your head, I'm not talking to you. But we, we have to, you know, I'm not saying look for the racist moment as mm-hmm. you're going out and trying to have a good time. But when you see something, you have to acknowledge it. You you have to say something. You have to put that person in the hot seat for a second so they don't feel comfortable doing that next time or saying that next time, that, that off-handed comment. Pinka Zuckerman obviously felt like he didn't do nothing wrong in the moment when he was talking about put some soy sauce on it. Somebody should have got him together right there in that moment. I don't know that they didn't, but he won't do it again, at least not comfortably, after this so-called apology and the and the public outcry and maybe and x y and z so there's that okay my second triloquy second and final triloquy i believe all of these mass graves of these children that they're finding up in canada all i did i went on um google and I searched Canadian churches burned. This comes from uh, independent.co.uk. Uh, Two more Catholic churches have been burnt down within indigenous communities in West Canada on Saturday. The two British Columbia churches, St. Anne's Church and Chapaca Church, were completely destroyed by fires which started within an hour of each other. Officers are calling this suspicious. So what's happening is that, well, the stories I'm hearing is that we're finding all of these bodies of ch- hundreds of bodies of indigenous children buried, exterminated. We're discovering this, and the indigenous people and other people in these communities are not having it, and they are responding to this. We sp- go ahead. What, what did they call these residential schools? Yeah, what are they, is that what they're called? What, which you know, really, it was re-education centers. There were places in which these indigenous children learned how to be white. Okay, some people will say learn how to be Western or whatever, but at the, at the end of the day, they were lear- teaching them how to be white. And for the ones that weren't lucky, they were just straight up killed and buried and put in these mass graves. Scott, we really have to start talking about what the future is going to look like when we seriously have the conversation of indigenous autonomy, indigenous equity, and reclamation of land. I know a lot of us are practicing land acknowledgments when we do different um, presentations and all that sort of thing. This is my question. Let me get my soundboard. This is my question. We can say, I'm calling in, I'm sitting in the ancestral land, uh, for example, here, um, Wapakuti Sioux of the Eastern Dakota. You know, I can say that. Homeowners, business owners around here can say that. What are we going to do? What are y'all going to do when Wapakuti Sioux, Eastern Dakota people come knocking on your door and say, you're on my land, you have to go? Okay. 
And I know that that sounds scary or weird or maybe radical or exaggerated to a lot of people. But seriously, I think we need to think about at least entertain the conversation of what that would mean. Because at the end of the day, when we're talking about equity, okay, that would be a huge step to give land back, to give them um, the rights that they had before all of this other stuff. Now, under, you know, we can always say, well, you know, I, I can just hear it in people. Well, I didn't um, I didn't kick anybody off their land or I didn't participate in any um, racial extinction and, and, and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if this is their land. And if we are practicing these land acknowledgments and acknowledging that this belongs to them, what is it going to mean when one of us has to put our money where our mouth is, so to speak? That's something I've been thinking about when it comes to these stories. I'm not, I'm not upset at these churches burning. I'm not upset at these churches burning. Anyone upset at these churches burning needs to understand that there were children, hundreds of children, who were just taken away purposefully by the government. Dell and I were talking earlier about um, articles that said um, Adolf Hitler used many of his techniques based on what he learned from Abraham Lincoln. America has been the the uh, the example, has been the the whole just this thing, and this conversation is one that I think is coming more and more and more into the forefront. You know, what are they going to do when they start to find these uh, mass graves in places in the United States? What role does law enforcement have in this conversation? They will likely be on the wrong side of the conversation, but I think it's a conversation we need to begin to acknowledge, if I'm going to use that word again, because it means something. Stating these land acknowledgments, it means something. And if you don't mean it, I encourage you not to do it because I mean it. I mean it for real. When we talk about justice, when we talk about liberation, it's things that we really, really, really have to have to consider and think about. Do you have an opinion or or thoughts on on that subject? First of all, have you heard about this this story of these mass graves that have been I have been discovered? Well, yes, it's, a, it's been in the news the the last several days, pretty prominent. And I I would like to find out more about Hitler cop cribbing notes from Lincoln. Sure, sure. Maybe, that maybe that's one heard. of those dubious factual claims. But we were we, no, you got to show. But we me were that. talking about it. We, yeah. we were we were talking about it earlier. What you gonna do when an indigenous person comes knocking on your door? Look out through the mail slot. <laughs> <laughs> Look, all all I'm saying is we can't we. It's a conversation. That's all I'm saying. I'm not everybody. I'm not saying everybody necessarily needs to abandon their homes and give their land back to the people that it belongs to. I'm not necessarily saying that. I'm saying we have to begin to consider the conversation, especially if we're going to do the performative work of land acknowledgments when we're making presentations or mm-hmm. in meetings or um, whatever. Before we go, Scott, and we did not talk about this earlier, I need everybody, everybody listening, I need you to send warm thoughts, prayers um, to my family, my niece, my brother's daughter, um has been dealing with cancer since she was born, okay, a little over two years old. Today, the doctor said that she has a 0% chance of survival. I don't know. So we we potentially have a a little girl's, a baby's funeral on our hand. I have actually never met Elise. 
in real life because of COVID and all that thing. I'm a, all those things. I'm going to try my best, you know, make every priority to, huh, to get down there. What I'm thinking about, and I'm bringing it up here because she does not have an opportunity. She does not have an opportunity to do anything to try to make the world better. I can't imagine the heartache that my brother Brandon must be dealing with. My my parents, you know, losing their granddaughter, my grandparents losing their great-granddaughter. They say that there's no larger hurt and harm than that. I think about the opportunities that she has not been given and that she will never be given. And I think about the opportunities that we have been given, okay? We weren't diagnosed with cancer when we were one year, one year old and given a 0% survival rate by a doctor as a, before we can talk and verbalize. You know, we have been given the, uh, the opportunity to live, and we have to do something with that. That's why I'm so, uh, so spirited and so passionate about the work I do. It's why I'm so unapologetic. It's why I don't really care about rules and, and uh, those sorts of structures in and, and certain aspects, because I feel like we have a responsibility. We've been given a chance to do something. Each and every one of us is a part of an ecosystem that can be better, that can be elevated. And if we aren't doing that, we're wasting our time, we're wasting our life, because so many people have not been given the opportunity. I need to continue to, you know, work my way through all of the emotions and and what it really means. But that's what's at the at the forefront for real of 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 my mind right now. So again, I hope everyone will just send you know prayers if that's something you do, um, warm thoughts because we 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 desperately need it. This this is a very 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 rough time. On the on the ch- topic in closing, on the topic of taking every mm, uh, taking every responsibility. I'm going to read a quote um that was published by the Black Opera Alliance. Um and this is a quote from Ibram X. Kendi. Uh, he says, "One either allows racial inequities to persevere as racist or confronts racial inequities as an anti-racist. There is no in-between safe space of not racist. I'm going to read that sentence again. There is no in-between safe space of not racist. The claim of not racist neutrality is a mask for racism. The claim of not racist neutrality is a mask for racism. We are all here. We have all been given the opportunity to live to breathe, and to change the world. It's not only an opportunity, it's a responsibility. I hope you'll think about that as you think about me and my family, and we will see you next week.